you're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast, where the forecast here is always compelling as we discuss real-life challenges, successes, and stories from the journey to Hybrid Cloud with your host, Andre Tost. All right, welcome, and thanks for joining the latest episode of the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Ajay Apti with us. He's an IBM fellow, and he drives IBM's public cloud infrastructure as a service. So obviously, infrastructure is some of the things we're going to talk about. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ajay. Thanks, Andre. Nice to talk to you and nice to talk to your audience. Let's start with introductions. As a full disclaimer, I should probably say that Ajay and I are old friends. We worked together for decades. We're not working together anymore, so I have a bit of catching up to do on what he does now. So go ahead, Ajay. Tell us a bit about your background, kind of how you got to be where you are and what you do today. All right. So I work out of IBM's Austin offices, been here pretty much last 27 years. IBM is my first and only job. While I started in OS2, spent most of my time at IBM working on middleware in WebSphere application server. I think that's where Andre, you and I crossed paths and worked together for a very long time on WebSphere application server. Then after that, something called IBM Pure Application Systems, which was then considered a cloud in a box kind of a model way before public cloud was a thing or public cloud became popular. That was more of an integrated hardware, software, export system kind of a model. So Andre and I pretty much, I wouldn't say invented that, but definitely pioneered some of that effort within IBM. And then again, that was a box that customers could buy, but then would place in their own building, right? And operate themselves. It was not a hosted kind of thing in any form or shape, right? That's correct. And that was sort of the beginning of our on-prem cloud journey, so to speak. I think that was also IBM's foray into an integrated system that had hardware. That time it was Intel and powered systems and software where we had this new thing called pattern-based deployment model where we could deploy complex middleware as a pattern, stamping it out in a repeatable manner. So that was an interesting, innovative concept that I think both Andre, you and I worked jointly on for a few years. I think we sold those boxes to many, many enterprise customers. The idea was to take complexity of middleware deployment, configuration, connectivity out through automation on steroids. That's pretty much what it was. Did the initial deployment, lifecycle management, all that stuff. I think it was a fun experience. For me, it was definitely my foray into hardware side of things. I was purely a software middleware guy before that. Java, Java EE stack, those were the things that I was mostly dabbling in before that. And then starting with pure application system, we got into hardware, software, both sides of things. And that also put some of us in a very unique position in IBM where we understood a little bit of everything. We understood a little bit of hardware, firmware, network, both on the underlay and overlay side of things, and then going up the stack into operating system and middleware and all kinds of IBM and non-IBM middleware and how customers use it to deploy their highly available applications. So I think that gave some of us working on it an opportunity to pretty much touch end-to-end stack of what it means to be a computer system. Yeah, I never even thought of a distribution problem or challenge before. We used to build software and then we would upload it somewhere and our customers could download it and try it out or buy it from us and then use it. 
I remember one example, we were going to do a POC and obviously a box now has to be physically shipped and then it fell off the truck and then something broke and then we couldn't start the POC. These were all situations that we had never encountered before or that I had never encountered before. Yeah, I mean, same here. I was shipped with the first customer deployment to Australia. And that was sort of my first time in a data center. Being a software guy, I never had to be in a data center pulling cables. And that was my first time with 20 people watching over me as to what is this guy doing in the data center. And so it was definitely an interesting experience, but gave me personally a lot of appreciation into some aspects that I had not had a time to look into, especially networking. And it took us X amount of time probably to build a box and ship it. And it took us much longer sometimes or often, I would say, to convince the network administrators on the customer side to say how this box is going to connect into their network, what is exactly going to be sent from this box to the rest of the network and vice versa. So that to me was a pretty big piece of education that I received at that time and which in my current job is very, very helpful to me how network and security essentially dominate how application deployment is considered in on-premise world and equally so in the off-premise world in cloud as well now. But that to me was an eye-opener. Certain customers wanted to know every single packet, every single protocol, every single detail of what was going over the wire from that rack to their data center or to IBM if you were to ship something. And this is before... SaaS became a common thing in the industry. So understanding those details, explaining that to customer, evolving our side to make sure we can bring that transparency. This is before iPhone was very, very popular and people were really curious about what exactly is iPhone or any smartphone is collecting from my phone and sending it over to the mothership. This predates all that stuff. But that was the beginning of that kind of knowledge base in terms of how these devices, be it a smartphone in a smaller device or be it a big rack like pure application system, how do they interface with the customer's environment and how do they also equally interface with the enterprise like IBM or any other manufacturer where they may be connecting for certain lifecycle management function. So I think that was pretty interesting. That was my journey from being a middleware programmer architect, looking more at building middleware and then letting consultants and others go customize it and operate it to running something firstly end-to-end, hardware, software mix, and then running it initially in a semi-managed kind of manner to then eventually a fully managed service kind of a model because we then moved to your application system from just an on-premise hardware software rack model to a service on IBM cloud to then my current role which is essentially running IBM cloud infrastructure as a service or IaaS as we call it which has got its own interesting challenges and value propositions right which basically represents the lower half, if you will, of what used to be in the system we call pure application, right? Because that went all the way up into applications and so forth. And I guess one of my questions to you is like, do you get to touch that kind of layer anymore? Or is your job done when someone gets a virtual server and storage attached to it and can go run with it? Oh, in fact, that layer that you talk about in pure application, and yes, we got to touch that layer for the first time with pure application. I go well below that now, way below that now. 
because now I'm designing data centers. We are looking at power. We are looking at rack space. We are looking at the energy consumption for sustainability. So it starts there. How do I build my data center? Where do I place my racks? How does the cabling happen? What is my network router topology? There are tens and tens of really huge routers that are connected in certain way to build my scalable network that is piping gigabytes, terabytes of data over the wire. So that's where it starts. And then, yes, it gets into an individual rack within that individual compute, within that a hypervisor application, generally running Linux, sometimes, you know, different operating system, which then is used to create a virtual machine. And then somewhere else in the data center, there is SAN or NAS storage, how it connects into storage. So what people or cloud consumers, they swipe their credit card, they use the interface, they get a virtual machine. And there is thousands of people and tens or millions of person hours of work in terms of architecture and deployment and operationalization that happens before you get your virtual machine. And that piece before you get your virtual machine is what I work on these days. And that's pretty much what I own technically in terms of designing it, developing it, deploying it, and then running it as a 24 seven service. And then of course the evolution, innovation, competitive advantages, all the other fun stuff that we talk about. And so obviously that's not really front and center stage anymore since in the day and age of cloud, it's implied. We just assume, yeah, I can get as many servers as I want. They're ultimately scalable. They're ultimately performant and they never go down and I don't need to worry about it. So I feel like we're not giving you the credit probably that you deserve for doing all of this. Interestingly, that's part of my sometimes, I won't say fight, but fight in a good way with some of my colleagues. But there's a huge technical innovation technical discipline that goes behind that with thousands of people worth of technology development that happens over several years to get to just that level and then the level of maturity as well as availability that you're expecting out of it and sometimes yes it's easy to undermine it i'm not saying in ibm we do but at the same time it's often asked and you know this andre very well that as us as technical leaders in IBM, whenever we talk about getting to the next level, are you talking to clients? Are you bringing enough business in IBM or any company? What is exactly that technical contribution? In the past, in the world that I come from, it was more about how many clients are you helping? And in this case, most of the real technical geniuses that I work with, they're sitting in the data center building the high-performance, scalable data center and systems with compute network storage and all their contribution visibility is, oh, I just got a virtual machine. So that often gets into an interesting set of conversations with some of my colleagues who come from a different world where a lot of it is customer facing. And in here, this is like the absolute lowermost stack of customer facing stuff and so a lot of people who work with me are like oh yeah we are just sitting in the basement and they are for the most part just that the work that they do essentially runs the cloud and you know i I mentioned the word scale from time to time and uh, you and i have worked on middleware yes there are scale challenges in middleware but something to understand is when you look at cloud everything that you do using that cloud runs on that is 
So IaaS scale at any point is bigger than anything you run on top of it. If you are scaling out your portion of the network, your portion of the Kubernetes cluster, or your application, right, by creating some horizontal cluster, and you're saying, okay, now I'm scaling from X transactions per second to 100 X transactions per second, those transactions are still flowing through the compute network storage under the covers that has to scale. So the meaning of scale in IaaS is essentially the cumulative meaning of scale of everything that runs on top of IaaS. PaaS, SaaS, customers, individual applications, all of that. But isn't there almost a balancing act now? And I have to admit, kind of one time where that really occurred to me is in a previous episode that we recorded with Vincent Su. He's part of the, the storage team in IBM. And he basically said, sustainability becomes a big factor in everything we do. And so he talked about tape drives. And I mentioned this quite frequently because it's so stuck with me in a way that he said, you know, we're storing more and more of this data on tape drives simply because it consumes too much energy to keep this on traditional storage. And I would assume that scaling is a similar thing. On the one hand, you want to promote sustainability and lowering of consumption of energy consumption and so forth. At the same time, it's a business driver for any cloud to get as much workload into the cloud as possible because that's how we make a living. Absolutely. And so this is where, again, some of the innovation comes into picture, right? How do you create a tiered model where you're not going to run everything with maximum horsepower and you're going to preserve your energy? And at the end of the day, a data center has certain amount of power that gets fed to it that dictates how much capacity you can put in a data center. And then your job is to optimize for that capacity. And so there are some physical constraints around space, power, and then you have to use those to A, have the densest possible environment so that you can actually create as many workloads as you can, deploy as many workloads. At the same time, you have to look at the energy consumption part of it because that's a gating factor. And as you consume more and more energy, you have to look at, Things like, can you tune your power consumption from time to time? This is something that a very good leader in my team works on on a regular basis. How can you auto-tune power that's going to individual servers to make sure that they're staying at the most energy efficient level? So there is all that kind of innovation that has to go in. And with focus on sustainability, rightfully so, that becomes an important thing. For instance, now there are so many industries as sometimes mandated by governments or by other regulatory bodies where they want to understand energy consumption at workload level, not at an individual server level, not at a data center level, at a workload level. In your world, Andre, you are probably deploying a Kubernetes cluster, which may be running on virtual machines which may be running on physical servers. And typically the energy consumption has been measured at an appliance level, be it a server or even a refrigerator at home. We measure it at that level. Now we are getting asked, rightfully so by customers, I'm deploying my Kubernetes cluster. Can you tell me the energy consumption at the Kubernetes cluster layer? Eventually it's going to come down to, I'm running this app on my Kubernetes cluster. Can you tell me the energy consumption at that application layer? I think those are going to be the interesting, I would say, evolving pieces of that sustainability model. That's interesting because I was going to ask you, and I guess I know the answer, are we monitoring and tracking electricity use, for example, for our data centers? And are we trying to get to a point where 
that goes lower. But I guess what you're adding to that is not only do we ourselves want to see and track and monitor this, maybe we even need to show our customers what their energy consumption contribution is with what they run in our data center. Correct. And so one part of it is us knowing about it, us using it to tune the systems. For example, I could just tune clock speed and I we do. I can tune the clock speed if I know that my power consumption is reaching some peak value and I need to bring it down. I may have to tune some of the CPUs by reducing the clock speed so that they reduce the energy consumption and that kind of stuff. That's all internal consumption. That is just optimizing your appliance power usage based on what the overall data center consumption looks like, right? This is no different from finding the right space within the data center to host your virtual machine based on the capacity and the individual capacity of each server, what's consumed, what's not consumed, etc. Similar to that, we can optimize. But yes, now customers very much so are starting to ask those questions because as I said, some of it is customers being more energy conscious. And a lot of that is also starting to be driven by some regulatory requirements that customers are expected to understand and expected to report for those requirements that are energy consumption. I think it's an evolving space. I think I saw somewhere, and you may have read it as well, that of the top Fortune 500 CEOs that were interviewed, I think a major percentage, I think two thirds or more, put sustainability as one of their top three initiatives for next year. So it's absolutely going to become more and more critical. And our goal is going to be how to create more and more transparency all the way at the application layer. And I think that's a challenge. We all know with things like containers, Kubernetes, things get very dynamic. And so consumption also becomes extremely dynamic. We're going to have to understand what that value is. And by the way, there is room for innovation. But at the same time, that also becomes a very important factor for our customers in terms of choosing on-premise or off-premise deployment. Of course, security and other data privacy and other concerns are there as well. But energy consumption is going to be a major factor going ahead, in my opinion. And this fits nicely into kind of my next point I was going to make. As we discussed, there's a lot of automation that is happening in that space. And usually what supports the degree of automation that we can do is what I think of as a level of abstraction or virtualization that we can add to certain layers, represented by the fact, for example, that almost everything is software-defined now. We have software-defined networks and we have software-defined storage and, and so forth. And you mentioned container as an example, all of which are completely virtualized components. And the fact that they are virtual and software-defined allows me to apply all kinds of automation methods to it to handle it more efficiently. Even though, I mean, coming back to the previous point, I guess every now and then we need to kind of poke through all those layers of virtualization and still go down to the bottom of it and see that there's real physical hardware underneath it all, because sometimes I need to have insight into that layer. Consumption being one example, but also, you know, how we store things, um, especially when it comes to how isolated is data and how we maintain data privacy and so forth, that sometimes... I feel like we need to break through that barrier of saying it's all virtualized. You don't even know what's really happening to the point where I do need to know what's happening, you know, for whatever reason. Yes. And definitely when it comes to things like sustainability, things like security, they absolutely need to know A, what's happening underneath and B, what access do you as cloud provider have to my virtual machine? 
I'm not just talking about user ID password kind of access. Do you have access to my memory? I'm running a critical banking workload and you, Mr. Cloud, are you going to be able to snoop on my memory as an example? Because I don't want you doing that. You could have a rogue administrator who's leaving the company who's getting fired. And I don't want not just rogue, but any administrator. I don't want you looking at my memory. I don't want you looking at my disk. So am I encrypting all the way from the point that data leaves my virtual machine? Am I encrypting it all the way in a way that I don't even have as a cloud provider access to the key of that encryption? So one part of it is that what hardware I'm running or the other part of important part of it is security that I as a cloud vendor should not have access to the information that's running inside that virtual machine because that's very critical to my customer's business. And that is another major area that all cloud vendors, including IBM, focus on. And particularly, you know, for our enterprise customers, I think it's a major consideration as they choose a specific cloud vendor. Yeah, I could see that. And security is a good point. I mean, security obviously plays a role everywhere. Another story that I like to tell is when we're working with this bank in Europe and they basically said, we need to do workload isolation with physical firewalls. And we said, why? We have firewalls running in software and it works. It will block traffic. And they said, it's not a matter of what the technical spec says. It's a matter of risk management. And we insist that we want to have physical firewalls because that's how we feel like we can lower the risk of breach and exposure and so forth. Absolutely. Again, different considerations as you go from software to the infrastructure side of things. But one point that I don't want to miss, you use the word abstraction and the kind of layers we built. Coming from the software land, I always jokingly used to say, there's no problem in software. You cannot solve by adding the next layer of abstraction. And you know this very well, that we built certain abstractions in our past life to make our life easier. To some extent, Java and Java Virtual Machine was a software abstraction that was built that helped the world. That was very interesting. In cloud, it's a very, very different world. If you see most of the cloud vendors, they're not looking at standardization today. It's just how industry has evolved. They're not. Almost every cloud vendor has a proprietary interface. There are some standards that are evolving, but not as popular. And more importantly, the goal in cloud has always been to optimize your software and hardware to a point where it can scale to thousands, potentially millions of endpoints, and it can scale both at the data level as well. So most cloud vendors are not looking at standardizing, abstracting, using open standards. They are looking at building a highly sophisticated, highly optimized, highly standardized, and hence highly automated stack that they can repeatedly deploy and easily operationalize. Yeah, that is an interesting point. And I was going to get to that because in the software world, we're always under pressure from customers saying, we don't want vendor lock-in. We want to have flexibility. We need to have pluggability and so forth to exchange certain pieces for something else. And so standards and open source obviously play a major role in that. But just like you said, when it comes to cloud infrastructure, there seems to be very little of that. And one of the questions I had for you is when we were talking before the recording, you said, there are no conferences that I go to where my peers from the other cloud providers hang out as well. Is that actually true? There is no community of cloud infrastructure people where you would compare notes with each other as to 
how you optimize the clocking of a certain server or anything like that? Everyone kind of does it in their own basement. Um, if you find one, let me know. But yeah, to some extent, that is true, partly because that's a crown jewel. And at the end of the day, of course, there is public material out there from IBM and competition about some of the hardware innovations that have been made, some of the Linux evolution that has been brought in. But everyone, for the most part, for the scale and for the reliability and all these characteristics that we need, it's largely about creating a standardized stack that is easy to scale, easy to operationalize. So that world that I live in is about building custom hardware that is the most secure, the network interface card or the storage interface card or things like that, that that is not easy to hack into. Most of our competition will invest in building their own kernel with their own hypervisor so that the VM essentially has the right security and scale and all other characteristics and things like that. Clearly, nobody wants to take a Linux off the shelf and run your hypervisor because that Linux will come with, let's say, Firefox. Why would I run Firefox on my hypervisor? Not only that, it may introduce a security risk for me. So everybody is going to optimize their stack for a standard set of hardware. When you look at software, pure software world, of course, you want it more agnostic to hardware. So you create the layers of abstraction like Java was one, where it's going to run the same code, write once, run everywhere. That's not how the cloud infrastructure world works. We have a specific set of hardware running a specific set of software stack that's highly tuned to that piece of hardware. So abstraction is not necessarily our best friend. Yeah, we use it wherever required, but that's not your best friend. Optimization is the main goal here. Optimization and then benefits of that in terms of scale, performance, resiliency, security, all these non-functional requirements, that's where essentially we are aiming. And so abstraction and standardization at that layer, the layer that I work on, that's not the most important thing. Of course, as you move higher up, that becomes very critical in the software space, in the application space, not as much below that layer. For me, it was a revelation that I'm not building a piece of software that runs on any hardware in the world. I have a very specific hardware and I'm building a piece of software that can run absolutely best in that piece of hardware. So it's a slightly different way of thinking. So another question in that context, do you ever go touch the hardware? Do you ever go to a data center and run around and plug cables or is that not something you do anymore? Well, I don't go to data centers because I don't live in the city which has those data centers and there are some regulations. Those are running some of our customer workloads and their regulations. So I can do that. But yes, we do have labs and we do have our own development, what we call and non-production environments where we do all kinds of experiments. So absolutely, that's essentially what it takes. But most of it is done remotely, remote logins and things like that. So you don't necessarily have to go do that. But I have people in my team whose whole job is that. Some of them are actually running data center, but some of them are inventing and innovating both the next generation of that hardware. Hardware in terms of compute, network cards, storage, whatever it may be. And so, yes, they pretty much live there. And that's also an interesting space to be in. And as I said, I did not have as much appreciation for it until I joined this. And the philosophy of developing 
a product was very, very different. Automation is absolute cornerstone of what I do, but abstraction, standardization, industry standards, those kinds of things were very big in my past life. Whereas here, it's very different. And more importantly, what I like after having worked in the industry for now almost 27, 28 years is that as a computer science student doing my master's in St. Louis, I'm back to the same space. I'm now looking more at Linux kernel. I'm looking at TCPIP stack. I'm looking more at storage protocols. So I'm really deep down into systems engineering, which is where I think a lot of us may have started or may have spent some time on in college. And I'm back into that space. And being technical, I like being in that space. It's a good, you know, 360 for me that I'm back doing systems programming. I did start in OS2, which was operating system side of things in IBM after finishing my master's. So I'm back into that space now, which is very interesting for me career-wise. All right. Yeah. And by the way, I'm looking at the timer here. We're running out of time. I could keep talking about this for hours and it makes me very curious. So maybe you and I need to kind of continue this conversation over a beer when we have a chance. Yeah, next time you're in town, man. <laughs> I have one final question for you, and I don't know if you can even answer, given that you said the things you work on are considered a bit like the secret sauce or the crown jewel as you take it. But I wonder if you could give us an example of something that you're currently working on that makes you particularly excited, that you think is really, really cool stuff, like I said, to the degree that you can share, something that makes you where you can't wait to get to work in the morning. That's an interesting one. I'll give you two things at a very abstract level, but clearly these are huge data centers. These are huge deployments. You can imagine the amount of data we collect as logs and metrics when these things run, petabytes or even more. And you can imagine that the amount of intelligence that can be gathered, the amount of insights that can be gathered and then be used both within our cloud business or even for our customers. So there are some activities happening in that space as to how do you use those insights to then make better systems, make our software run better, help our customers and things like that. But really, I mean, anything that I've done in the past, multiplied like thousand times or a million times, that's the amount of insights that I'm generating now. Customers data center probably multiplied that many, many times is what a cloud data center would look like. So the insights that you can generate, AI and analytics is all about the kind of data you generate. So that's where a lot of our activities are happening as to what insights we can gather. Can we use them for our testing, for example? You get every single failure if you just look at last one years of your cloud usage. Somehow can you use that to then extrapolate your test scenarios as an example? Right? Like in your case, you're in the software world. What if all your customers were to send you all their logs? Would you be able to then turn that into some good test cases for testing your software? And I think that would be a huge advantage. So how do you get insights from that data is one major initiative. Sustainability is another one. The other important one is where some of my world is going is for performance and scale reasons. How do you push more and more of software functionality into hardware. A lot of my competition is doing that. We are doing it, others are doing it. And that's gonna be a very interesting space. If you remember, you know, two decades ago, you and I were part of the first wave of what we call appliances, which pushed some of the software functionality to hardware as an appliance 
which was easy for customers to manage and was secure as well. IBM had a lot of success with some of those appliances, but the concept is still the same that can I push more and more into hardware for performance reasons, for scale reasons, for security reasons, and things that you may not even think of in hardware. Now there's an opportunity to push more and more of the software stack into hardware. All right. Very cool. I'll leave it at that. So we'll wrap up. This was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming, Ajay. And thanks a lot, Andre. Well, with that, I want to thank you all for listening in to today's episode. Hope you had some fun and hope to see you all soon again. Bye-bye.